Bible, I would love for you to grab one. We're going to be in Philippians chapter 4. Again, I just want to welcome you. My name is Matthew, if we haven't had a chance to meet yet. Uh, if you're new to the Bible or Christianity, we're so glad you're here. Um, we love Jesus. We love his word. And um, every Sunday, I get to teach from the Bible to hear what Jesus and Holy Spirit has to say to us. Um, sometimes that means us going through a book of the Bible exegetically. Other times it means that we're going through topics and seeing what the Bible has to say. But today, we're ending a four-month-long series in the book of Philippians, the letter to the Philippians. And we're going to be in chapter four, and we're going to be on those last three verses. And you've, I don't know if you've already like gone ahead and read. You notice where we left off last week. You're probably thinking, how on earth are you going to preach a sermon on a final greeting? I don't know, but we're going to try it and see how it turns out, okay, if everybody's okay with that. A greeting. Let's preach a sermon on that, they said. They'll win the masses, they said. Let's see what's happening in here. Actually, this is one of my favorite final greetings uh, in the New Testament, and I'll explain that in just a moment. Everybody there? Right, two of you are. You'll, you can watch it, look it out on the screen. All right, thank you, Daniel. Here's what Paul says to uh, his church in Phil Philippian, uh, to the Philippi folks down there. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus, the brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Just one more time, let's go before the Lord and let's pray over the reading of God's holy word. God, thank you so much for every person that is here. Um, I just believe that it's not by accident that they're here. I believe that your spirit is calling and drawing and wooing. So God, I just pray that you would be mighty to save in this theater room, that you would be mighty to heal, that you would be mighty to uh, deliver, that you would be mighty to um, just restore brokenness in our hearts. You can do all things, God. So we just rely and trust in you. And that when we leave this room, uh, may we see how glorious and magnificent Jesus Christ is. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So, like I said, this is a kind of a final greeting, um, uh, like a goodbye greeting that he says. This is not very typical uh, final conclusion that Paul typically gives in the letters that he writes, right? Most of the time it's uh, make sure you greet this person, greet that person, greet this person. This one's just a little bit different, and I really like this goodbye. Now, goodbyes can either be really good, like if you're really ready for the person to leave, amen? Been there, done that, right? Then they can be really, really like, uh, I'll go here like traumatic, and I've experienced like, like deep, um, depressive goodbyes, right? You ever experienced one of those types of goodbyes? 
Like when you were really sad to see somebody go or when you were really sad to actually leave. Like this happened is pretty um, just fresh in our life because maybe you don't know our story, but we just moved here from Georgia. We had a church plant there that we were at for 10 years. We lived there our entire life, but God took a hold of our hearts and told us to move and share the gospel, the true gospel of Jesus Christ to Utah. So to say I understand a sad farewell, I get it. Saying goodbye to parents, saying goodbye to uh, the church family, that they just weren't like church folk. These people were people who I lived next to. They were my neighbors. They were my friends. They were my brothers. They were my sisters. I call this gospel goodbyes. It's when the gospel at times calls us out of our comfort, right? It's when the gospel calls us out of our convenience. I mean, life back in Georgia, although the humidity was like terrible, but life back in Georgia was completely fine. Church was going well. Things were thriving. You would be stupid as a pastor to want to leave something that was healthy and growing, even in the middle of a pandemic, but God had other plans. And so I get like these gospel goodbyes because I've experienced them. And so Paul is writing this, this farewell. It's almost like a greeting slash farewell. And, and I want us to kind of just dive in real quick and see what's happening in just these three simple verses that some of us probably, like when we go through the New Testament, particularly some of Paul's letters, like when we get to the last chapter or when we get to the final greeting, we just kind of skim through it. Be careful not to do that because you'll see a lot of incredible things, especially what's happening in here. So let's go through this and pray for your pastor. Make sure I do this okay. Greet every saint. Look back at verse 21. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus, the brothers and sisters. I don't want to leave the sisters out. The brothers and sisters who are with me greet you. Now let's, let's, let's think about what a Roman, um, a Roman Greco final greeting would look like. It would just typically look like somebody saying, good luck, sign your name, I'm done, right? You know, like how we would write a letter. Anybody still write letters? It's like a foreign thing, right? When you actually like have to get a pen, y'all remember those things? They have like ink in them. They're like this tall. You grab it, you write on a piece of paper. And like when you're writing a letter to someone that you really care for, at the end, you're just like either best wishes, praying, whatever, Matthew, right? This isn't what Paul does. Paul is not a normal writer. This is not a very typical Roman Greco type letter in its final conclusion. We know that Paul is a brilliant writer. Paul is an incredible writer. So he knows exactly what he's doing in his final conclusion to the letter to the church of Philippi. Look what he says. He says, in Christ Jesus. Paul has an incredible love for in Christ Jesus. And his love for Christ Jesus is not passive either, is it not? Everything Paul writes about from his conclusion, be in Christ Jesus to the very beginning. When we go back to chapter one, verse two, he says, grace to you and peace from God, our father and our Lord Jesus Christ. And he says, hey, me and Timothy, me and Timothy were here and we're in Christ Jesus. Later, Paul says that you are to live your lives as citizens of the kingdom of who? Yeah, King Jesus, Christ Jesus. So we get even in this final um, 
greeting or this final conclusion that Paul writes, that Paul is still stuck on this idea of who Jesus is. Because this is so important, because Jesus Christ has radically transformed his life. Everything Paul now does is completely revolving around Jesus Christ. Not in a man, not in a prophet, not in one of the old guys that's dead that they read about. No, his whole life is about Jesus Christ. Why? Because he's been radically transformed by Jesus Christ. What say us as a church? What say myself? Like, is my life, does it revolve all around King Jesus? And I think that's a question you could ask yourself when you're reading through this, particularly the the letter to the Philippi folks down there. It's all about Jesus Christ. Is my life about Jesus Christ? Are my finances about Jesus Christ? Are the decisions that I'm making, are they about Jesus Christ? Is everything that I'm doing does it revolve around Jesus Christ? And I think that's the question that you have to ask yourself. So Paul's letter, they typically say, again, um, when he's concluding, he's like, yo, go tell a uh, homegirl down the street, I said, thank you. And he's like, you know, go tell this person, go tell that person, go tell this person. So he's like, pretty much in his letters, in his final greetings, he's pretty uh, detailed in who he wants the church to greet. But who does he tell the church to greet? You see this? Themselves, the church, the saints down in Philippi. Paul could have said, greet anybody you come in contact with. But Paul is pulling some ancient language when he's talking about the saints or the children of God, like these Israelites who are once viewed as the children of God. Now Paul is pulling that same language. He's like, you know what? If you're part of the church, guess what? You're the child of God. And I want you to greet each other, build each other up. He could have easily said, we want you to go out and, and go talk to as many as folks as you can and go greet the sinners. Amen. Go greet those heathens down there in Philippi. He says, I want you to greet each other. I want you to build each other up. This is this is pretty cool because like when, when Paul here is talking about a saint or a child of God, like we realize that like not everybody's a child of God, right? Do we get that? You know, culture, when they want to believe in God, it's kind of weird. Like they're so bipolar in their belief of God. You'll hear sometimes culture say, well, we're all children of God. Well, well are we? We're all in the image of God, the Imago Dei, but are we really children of God? So, so the, well, the question is like what made these people in Philippi a child of God? What makes you a child of God is grace. What makes us a child of God? It's being adopted into the kingdom of God. What makes us a child of God is that we've been adopted and regenerated through the Holy Spirit, born anew. That's what makes us a child of God. So whenever culture wants to tell you they believe in God and they're really fluid on that, They'll tell you we're all children of God, but I would say, in fact, if you're not a child of God, what Romans would tell us is that outside of being adopted and being grafted into the kingdom, you're an enemy of God. Uh, Colossians 1.27 would tell you that you have been, you are alienated and an enemy in your mind to the things of Yahweh. 
So Paul's pretty specific when he's telling them, like, I want you guys to greet each other, build people up. Now that you are a child of God, you are citizens of King Jesus, and go greet all of them. This is significant because I think Paul is drawing back to this idea of the family of God, right? Like now you've all been grafted and you are now have been adopted into a family. And what do families do? Now, some of you may come from a pretty busted up family. But I think the ideal family like of God that he would present, like they do, what do they do? They, they do life with each other. They share meals with each other. If you're in a healthy family, they build you up and not kick you down, right? So this is what Paul is saying. He's drawing them back into the idea of what a family really is. And he's telling the church, like, I want you guys to be a family. Look at verse 22, because this is my favorite verse. Maybe my favorite verse in Philippians. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. This is the part of the letter, because, you know, like when Paul writes this letter, he sends it back to the church of Philippi. And they don't like do what we do. We take like four or five verses, kind of exegete through and like give some practical things because that's what we do here in America. We've got to have that practical preacher or I'll leave, right? This is not what they did. So they took the letter and they read the entire thing together. And this is the point where if they drank coffee, they spit it out. Did you hear what he just said? Y'all, especially those in Caesar's household. Who threw Paul in prison? Come on, y'all remember? Caesar. Who is Caesar this time? Nero. Incredibly wicked, vile, and disgusting individual. Where are their believers at? Do you see this? They're in Caesar's house the most disgusting, one of the most disgusting emperors in the history of Rome. They have spies in his household. Now, interesting thing about household. When we think of household, like what do we generally think of? Like mom, dad, kids, praying one day the kids move out, right? So it's just back to mom and dad, maybe grandma, maybe grandpa, if you're from the South, maybe me, Ma, Pa, Pa, like, like, you know, you got your cousins. You may, you may include cousins, unless you got cousins like me. You may include aunts and uncles, unless I'm your uncle, and then you probably don't include me. It's fine. I'm not judging or anything. I'm not better either. That's what we think. It's kind of the American idea of what a family is. But for uh, Greco-Rome, this is not what a family is. It's more of like an institution, they have hierarchy of people. So at the top of the chain, you had the father and typically was the oldest male in the household. Underneath him, you'd have his, his sons. And you wouldn't even have the son's wives a part of their hierarchy because they're still probably a part of their father's chain of command. So underneath them, this unit expands to... Uh, maybe clients, maybe people who are working, but they're actually getting maybe some type of wage from the patron guy. And then underneath them, you had slaves. Now, slavery for them was just a little bit different than when we think about slaves. 
Like we think of slavery, we think of what happened a couple hundred years ago, but for them what slavery was is that you actually had a chance to work yourself out of slavery. And when you worked yourself out of slavery, a part of this family unit, you could become like that next tier up above the slaves. You could become the people who were clients. And so now you were getting paid. And here's the interesting thing about being a slave. Once you were out of that slave, you were now called a freed man. And if you had children as a freed man, if I'm nerding you out, I'm so sorry. This is just interesting to me. If you were a freed man, then your children became citizens of Rome. And they get all of the benefits that Rome gave you. I don't know who the folks that are creeping up in um, homeboy's house, okay? I don't know who they are. They could be slaves. They could be the, the, the guard. Do you remember back in a couple chapters ago, um, a couple chapters ago when, when Paul says, you know, I've got this, this palace guard, and I think it was like verse 12 of chapter two or maybe one. So it's become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. So let me talk about these imperial guards that it could have been, like Paul's witnessing to them. And, and here's what I suggest, like Paul never viewed Jesus Christ or the kingdom of God advancing as something passive. Paul's witnessing to imperial guards. These guys were crazy. These guys were probably um, the emperor's bodyguard. They were also men who would take shifts and guarding people like Paul. Paul's witnessing to the imperial guards, and it could have been not just slaves who were part of Caesar's household. It could have been Caesar's very own bodyguard. Here's what I'd suggest. Don't ever underestimate the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Here's why I know this is true. So this is around 60-something A.D., just a few hundred years later, around 313, 323, Constantine calls Rome a Christian nation, an empire. You know how that started? Because there was a spy in Caesar's household who was infiltrating the empire with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Sometimes it gets so discouraging when we're witnessing and sharing the gospel with people. It gets so like tiresome like when we're sharing the gospel of Jesus. But my friends, listen to me very carefully. Don't ever underestimate the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You may have family members you're witnessing to. You may have children you're witnessing to. You have coworkers you're trying to, to share the gospel with. And it may feel like you're hitting a brick wall. I felt that before. I felt that a lot here in Utah. But if God can change the house of Nero and the empire of Rome, can he not do it through you? Don't ever underestimate the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So like I said a second ago, and I think this, 
this is worth like mentioning. Like Paul doesn't view sharing the gospel. He doesn't view King Jesus as something that's just something passive, right? No, Paul's a fanatic. He's writing about King Jesus. He's putting this in there. This is so, this is why this is so interesting. Maybe he knew, maybe he didn't know, but I would kind of think that maybe he knew that when he writes this letter, it's going to circulate around, right? And so when other people start seeing this, they're like, oh, wait a minute, Paul's got a death wish. They've got Christians in the emperor's house. Paul's not passive about, I think sometimes we view the gospel as something that should be passive, right? Our culture is always, you know, we tend to go the route of like, well, I'll, I'll build a relationship with you for like four years. And in those four years, you never share the gospel. Um, Romans 10 verse 14 says, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him who have not, they've not heard of? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless somebody is sinned? And as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Please build relationships. Don't be a jerk to people, right? But also don't give in to the lie uh, that I think some of us have ascribed to that says share the gospel and when necessary use words. That's the biggest bogus lie of our culture in the church today. Because how will they not hear if someone is not telling them about what Christ Jesus has done within them? Paul wasn't like thinking like, you know what I'll just do with this imperial guard? It could behead me. I don't know. Who cares? I'm just going to build a relationship with him. Maybe we can have tea one day. Let's have tea or sip on some coffee and he can share with me his life experiences. No, I'm sure Paul was like, bro, I was one of the people who are telling uh, the other religious leaders to kill and crush out the Christian church. But then Jesus met me and he changed my life. I'm sure that's how the conversation would go. Because Paul knew he was never to underestimate the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it takes the most wicked people and turns them into the saints of God. I mean, Paul's a prime example. Let me just squash it for you. You are a prime example of that. An enemy of God, dead in your sins, but by grace, you have been redeemed, and now you're no longer viewed as an enemy of God. You are a child of God. You know why that's so powerful? because the gospel is powerful. When I was going through this, I thought about some stories of, of some of the most craziest conversions, right? I thought about the story of Bashir Mohammed, a former jihadist who fought in the front line for uh, the front line of Syria, of the Syrian war in a branch that was an offshoot of Al-Qaeda now wears a cross of Christ around his neck and leads a Bible study in Turkey, in Istanbul, Turkey, and reads the gospel of Jesus Christ to about 20 other believers. Oh, that's a terrorist. 
God can never change that guy. Don't ever estimate, underestimate the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I love how this is also like given as this idea, and this is my favorite part, how it's infiltrating, like infiltrating the Roman Empire with King Jesus's message that Nero, you are not God, King Jesus is. Because isn't that the language and the, the message that got Paul in prison? That Jesus, you are Kyrios or that you are God or, that, or how they would translate that in the Greek is that Jesus is Yahweh and was a slap to Nero. And so Nero's like, ah, no, no, I'm king and I'll show you, I'll throw you in prison. Paul's message of this unashamed gospel began to infiltrate the Roman Empire. I think we have like a, a slight problem in our church today, not Refuge City, but I think as a broad overview of the church, we have a lot of weird things kind of infiltrating the church that are not of God. The neo-Marxism that's infiltrating the church the ungodly movements all around us that are screaming for the church include us. And guess what some of the churches are doing? These movements are infiltrating the church instead of the church infiltrating the culture around us. I see Refuge City Church as a church that infiltrates the state of Utah with the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what I'm after. If you're after that, come join me, right? Let's get some people who are not afraid to infiltrate their jobs, infiltrate their schools, infiltrate their maybe own families with the message and the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why? Because we should never underestimate its power. Now, sometimes it does seem tiresome and it does feel like, man, I've been sharing the gospel with this person. Or like, man, I just get so tired of laboring for the kingdom of God. And hey, I get it. What do you do in those moments, right? He gives us the answer in verse 23. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Now, most of the time when we think of grace, we think of the unmerited favor of God. And yes, that is grace. Grace is what saves. It's the power of grace through faith in Jesus Christ. It's what brings you to salvation at that moment, right? But it's also the thing that continues the salvation. It's what we call sanctification, it's also the thing that tells you, like, like, say no to that sin. That's what grace does. Grace is also like this, this idea of being the spirit of God with you. So it gives us the idea that when you're tired, when you're just kind of feeling defeated, guess what's going to be there for you? Grace. When you feel lonely, when you feel tired, when you feel abandoned by your friends or your coworkers, you know what's going to be there ready to meet you? Grace. 
your, your struggles in your marriage, your struggles in your relationships. You know what's there to meet you? Grace, because it never leaves you. It's always there. It's like the lurking child over your bed when they have a night terror and they're like staring at you, right? right? And you kind of pee your pants a little bit because it scares the bejesus out of you. That's what grace is. Like you thought you got rid of it. But no, there's grace standing over your bed. Like it's right there. Feeling tired and, and just kind of worn out? Just kind of feeling worn out of the mission of God? You know what's going to be there for you? The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ with your spirit. So I'm going to, I want to end this series by just kind of closing on just a few things. Maybe some thoughts that I have like through this whole series and through the whole book of Philippians and mainly it comes from these three verses. And, and the first one is that, are we all about Jesus, right? Is, is that a question that you probably need to ask yourself? Like, is your life, does it all revolve around King Jesus? Do your finances, does your relationships, does the, the, the job, like everything you do, is it about King Jesus? This letter that Paul writes, it starts with Jesus. It, throughout the letter, it's about Jesus and it ends with Jesus. Our lives about King Jesus. I don't know if our kids still do this, but I think they did this at the beginning of their service where they go at Refuge City Kids. We're all about Jesus. Oh, good, they still do that. I was just kind of shooting in the dark on that one. I was hoping you guys still did it. At the beginning of their service, they take kids in the next theater over and they start their service with that anthem. At Refuge City Kids, we're all about King Jesus. At Refuge City Church, we're all about King Jesus. And the thrower household, we're all about King Jesus. Are you all about King Jesus? Maybe you need to trust in King Jesus because you're still just so far away from him that you have not been a recipient of that just unmerited grace of Christ that saves you from being dead in your sins. Maybe you need to surrender and trust in King Jesus so that your life can be all about Jesus Christ. I just got a whiff of popcorn. It was really good. Number two. <laughs> like when someone's growling, it's not good that I smelt that. We bind you in the name of Jesus, you terrible smell. The, here's the other thought that I have with this, that the gospel is powerful. You're feeling defeated. You're feeling like you're hitting the brick walls with your coworkers or your family. Man, I want to encourage you this morning. Do not underestimate the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do not underestimate. Like we can't stop sharing the gospel. We can't stop penetrating our culture and infiltrating our culture with the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I was, I was also reminded of the story of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, which was a theologian and a pastor in Germany, and who was a guy who stood up against Hitler. Because the, like, the Nazis were infiltrating the church. 
kind of, I don't know, sounds something similar to today, right? Nazis were infiltrating the church, making the church like this state-run thing. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, oh, no, no, not today, Felicia. Or not today, Hitler, right? You know, you know what he did? So he became a spy to go and try to see Hitler to his death. He tried to infiltrate the Nazi party. It actually kind of ended them dead. So that wasn't a really encouraging example. <laughs> but I'm reminded of these great men of faith who were just unashamed and weren't passive about their faith and weren't passive about the language of King Jesus being king over all things now and who were doing the heavy work of infiltrating their culture. So I say it as like, don't underestimate the power of the gospel of Jesus. Don't stop sharing it. When you start back to school in a couple weeks, penetrate your school with the gospel. When you start back college in a few weeks, penetrate the school with the gospel of Jesus. And, and lastly, like, I just want to remind you that the grace of Jesus is available now. I want to read out of Titus chapter 3. It says this in verse 4, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Like nothing we can do, nothing we can do can earn the favor of God. In fact, Paul told us back in a couple of chapters ago that all the righteousness that he had memorized the Torah kept the letter of the law down to a T. Paul said it was scubalon or, or, or filth, or the word scubalon means poop. He equates all of his righteousness with dung. So what do we do? There's grace. It's right here. Feeling weary, feeling broken? What do you do? You run to Grace. And you swim in the ocean of God's grace for you. Feeling tired of witnessing? What do you do? You just swim in, in the grace of, of God. When you think that you've kind of experienced all the grace that God has for you, here comes another wave ready to crash over you. And just rest in the grace of Jesus. I just want to encourage you with that this morning. Like, just rest in the grace of Jesus Christ. Don't let your faith become some passive conversation. Rest in Jesus' grace. Let me pray over this morning.